You're listening to Accounted For, the Canadian podcast that explores the intangibles of every career. I'm your host, Daniel Lee. Hello, hello, happy Wednesday, and welcome back to Accounted For, the podcast that shares and inspires unconventional career journeys. Like always, please help the podcast grow by doing whatever you can. You know, tell your friends, subscribe, listen in, all the jazz, share on your social platforms and all the fun stuff, as well as subscribing to my newsletter at omdventures.com. It's a fun little way for you to get involved with what it's like to, I guess, build out a whole platform. Um, I share my weekly journeys on my newsletter, so if you are curious on what I do on a week-to-week basis, definitely subscribe. That's completely exclusive to the newsletter subscribers. Um, You won't find that anywhere else, but everything else is fully available on the site, like my weekly essay, my learnings newsletter, where it's a different kind of newsletter that just focuses on everything I've learned throughout the week, and I just write a short excerpt about each point. It's kind of like five bullets every week, as well as the podcast episode, and yeah, it's just a great way to keep in touch with what I'm doing. And also, it helps you not feel like you're alone in your journey as well. That's another value. Okay, today's conversation is with Elvis Wong. Elvis is the founder and managing director at Innovate Financial Health. I'm going to refer to it as IFH uh, for the rest of this introduction just because it is a mouthful. So IFH is a not-for-profit accelerator based in Toronto that works with startups addressing the problem related to financial health, and specifically, I believe, for people who are financially vulnerable. That's something that we discuss further in our conversation, and this is for financially vulnerable Canadians. There's a little focus there, too. Having developed a passion for social impact since high school, Elvis leveraged his experience as a management consultant to join the Mars Studio Y Fellowship Program to find ways of using technology to create social impact. What he did not expect was that he would be solving a problem in wealth inequality that would lead him to opportunities working with social capital partners, one of the leaders of impact investing in Canada, and starting an accelerator, IFH, that is backed by J.P. Morgan Chase and Capital One. In addition to dissecting his journey to creating IFH, we dig into the various learnings he has had from building an accelerator and strategies for forming partnerships and large corporations. And like always, I use it in some ways as a therapy for myself and also a bit of a coaching session as I learn about building communities. And it's something that Elvis and I talk in length about as well. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Elvis. everyone welcome back to accounted for today on the podcast we have elvis wong hey elvis thanks for coming on the podcast thanks for having me elvis here is the founder and managing director at innovate financial health and so elvis for our audience who may not be familiar with your company can you describe to us what innovate financial health is great innovate financial health is a nonprofit accelerator here in toronto and what we do is we help startups that are focused on improving the financial lives of financially vulnerable Canadians. Um, So people living low income, newcomers, people living paycheck to paycheck. Uh, And what we do as an accelerator is that every uh, 
cohort, we select four companies and we give them funding. Um, we give them access to mentors and advisors from financial institutions, fintechs, um, different entrepreneurs, uh, the social impact space. Uh, and we, we try to help them grow. Okay. So is that different from like a venture capital or like incubator? And if so, how is that different? It's different from venture capital in that we're giving them uh, a tailored program that they're going through, through a cohort, and we're not taking any equity. So we give them $25,000 in grants. Um, incubator and Accelerator are somewhat similar, but Incubator is generally a more early stage company that's focused and you're really taking an idea and helping them create an MVP or a minimum viable product. Uh, in Accelerator, we part of our criteria is that the companies already have a product in market and we're just trying to help them grow. Oh, okay, gotcha. And so then for the for your accelerator, how does the business model work if you're just giving money and you don't take any equity in the company? Yeah, so we're a nonprofit. So how we get money is through sponsors and foundations and grant funding. Okay, well, so that might fit to the future business model of OMD Ventures as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so so then right now, I think you your current um, sponsors are like Capital One, JP Morgan, um, those are like the big ones that I've read about. Exactly. And so in those banks, like what do they get out of sponsoring this accelerator? Yeah, I think there's two things. So one is that uh, our goal is to improve the financial lives of Canadians and financial health of Canadians. And I think what we found with both JP Morgan Chase and Capital One is that it's very much aligned with um, where their strategy is at in uh, CSR. Uh, philanthropic sense, so corporate social responsibility sense. Um, so in terms of their benefit, um, their, it's the branding in terms of supporting this type of innovative uh, initiative, uh, but also the employee engagement. So the opportunity to really work with the startups and have their employees engage with the startups and um, learn from them and be able to influence them. We find that a lot of mentors and advisors are really excited about just supporting the startups themselves. Oh, okay. So then these companies have bring their own people in as mentors and advisors to help. Yes. Oh. Okay. We do have mentors and advisors from all the other financial institutions as well, but also from JP Morgan Chase and Capital One. Yeah, there, there is that alignment and incentives there. Mm-hmm. And for your background personally, like, are you from Canada originally? Like, were you born and raised? Yeah, I was born uh, born in Mississauga. Oh, okay, mm-hmm. nice. And so you've just stayed in Ontario your whole life? Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> I've, yeah, born and raised uh, other than like college and university, mm-hmm. uh, but always in Toronto. And why why this venture to help um, low-income Canadians? Like, where did that come from? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think that, um, so there's a kind of a long story in terms of how I got here, uh, but I, in a general sense, I think that my mind has always been how do we use tech for social impact. Um, and that's always been what's driven me. So actually, funny thing, over the Christmas holidays, I was reading my yearbook from grade 12, and I didn't expect this, but a lot of the comments were like, hey, can't wait to see what startup or what nonprofit you end up starting. And this was, I don't know, 10 years ago or something. And wow. I didn't I didn't actually know that I was thinking that way in grade 12, uh, but apparently I was. I'd love to dig into it a little more. Like- because that's very specific, like nonprofit. Like you don't have many friends, who, right? At least in like the high school age, like I can't wait to do kind of nonprofit. Like you start, like what? What do you think um, gave that kind of impression when you're like so young? 
Um, it's a good, I think it's always been what's driven me in terms of just trying to help others and help society. And that's like where I see value. So I've, I've read somewhere like there's different things that people see value, right? And in their lives, it could be making an impact. It could be money. It could be love and relationships. Um, and there's kind of these different pillars that people drive, drive to what people do. And for me, it's always been around impact. Mm. Was that a big part of you, even like when you were like young, when you were like yeah. seven or like eight, where you like, oh, I want to help poor people when, when I grow up or launch some kind of non-for-profit? Yeah, I like, I can't recall for seven and eight or eight, but, but even in, in high school and I don't want to like, I struggle with the fact that it's not like, it's not like me being a savior and helping people less privileged than me, but it was like in um, grade in high school, I was involved with social justice issues and indigenous issues. Um, and then even in university, um, I was running our um, Enactus at Queens, which is a school uh, club. But we were helping uh, the community using business and entrepreneurship to help the community. So we would teach actually financial education to um, different high school students, but also to our prisons. Uh, so, low, um, so inmates at our local prisons in Kingston. Um, that were just about to leave prison and we would teach some entrepreneurship and um, financial education as well mm, wow and i think the stereotype when i was applying for university was that yeah queen queen's university is next to a prison like i'm not gonna say like that's the, uh, next to like thing. nine prisons yeah, nine yeah. Prisons. yeah that, was, that was one of the things that i learned about because I, I grew up in the west coast and so i don't know much about the area but that was something that people would say but you talked about the long journey so we're going to go through the long journey maybe break it piece by piece but if I were to pr- provide the listeners with the overview, so you went to Queens, you studied commerce there. Um, did you major in finance or? Nope, just I just took whatever courses whatever you were interested. To. Oh, to me. Yeah. what a refreshing perspective! <laughs> doing something like you're interested in. Yeah, I just t- I just decided my courses based off of who were the best profs. Um, so, uh, and that's really just what I did. Yeah. Wow, there was no pressure to get a major. No, because I was doing consulting. I mean, if you're doing finance or accounting, um, like there's certain courses that you have to take, right? Uh, but for me, in consulting, like they don't only hire commerce students anyways. They hire a lot of engineers, um, geography students. Like, uh, So it didn't really matter uh, which courses I took. Also, you, you had already decided while you were in university that you were going to pursue consulting? Well, by definitely by my third and fourth year, mm. I didn't know what consulting was when I first started right, right. In, in at Queens. Uh, but more more than that, I also I more so decided that I definitely did not want to do accounting or finance or anything that was super super structured. Okay, okay, that's good. I, that's something else I think people um, forget about. Where it's important to also know what you don't like as much as it's important to know what you like mm-hmm. and canceling things out by the way of like, I don't like this, I don't like that, is also a great way of narrowing your selection. And so yeah. you ended up pursuing consulting at AT Kearney for three years, I think, about. Mm-hmm. And after that, you went to Mars in their um, Y Fellowship, Mars Studios Y Fellowship program. Mm-hmm. And after that, you joined Social Capital Partners. And from there, I think Innovate Financial Health was born, where you've been operating this for about close to two years, right? Yeah, uh, about a year and a half. A year and a half, yeah. Mm-hmm. And... So I'm going to kind of start off at 
when you were at AT Kearney and you know I've I come from a similar management consulting background myself and so when you're in that kind of environment my experience is that there, I haven't had many colleagues go over to any kind of fellowship program at like a what, what would you define Mars as like an incubator or a yeah, tech ecosystem it's a, it's a uh, and, and something like that yeah, every, <laughs> everything related to Canada's tech scene some, they have any every program for that so but it wasn't a popular thing for a lot of management consultants at least when I was in that field to, to go and do so for you how did that decision come about so um, how that decision came for me was uh, so it was actually I was around two years into Carney um, and I wasn't I think a lot of people get burnt out from consulting I was still doing fine like I was um, still enjoying my work and still learning but really it was that um, I was traveling for Carney so I was going to New York but also like rural North Carolina etc and this was 2017 and there's just a lot of exciting stuff happening in tech in Toronto which was also something that I always uh, was interested in pursuing uh, and and then I saw this fellowship opportunity and it had that perfect marriage of tech and social impact um, so it just felt like the perfect opportunity for me in terms of what I'm interested in um, so I actually applied and I got a lot of support from people at Carney so um, my managers uh, were my references um, my partner allowed me to not travel to client site um, to do my interviews for Mars. So they were very supportive uh, of me actually um, having this opportunity. And uh, and so that's really what happened in terms of joining the Studio Y Fellowship. And what is the Studio Y Fellowship? Yeah, so the Studio Y Fellowship uh, at that time, it was a nine-month program. And what it is is that uh, it's 25 uh, systems leaders, uh, young systems leaders across Canada. So the whole idea of the Studio Y Fellowship is to teach um, these youth how to uh, influence change uh, in these big issues. So uh, there's a finance and commerce stream, which was the stream that I was in, but there's also uh, health, uh, education, and environment. Um, and then what would happen is that as when we start the program, some of us would actually work for Mars. So I decided to do that, but not everyone had to. So I worked for Mars's uh, early stage entrepreneurship team and then also the corporate partners team. Uh, but on the side, we were all given a research project with our group. Uh, so it was actually that research project, uh, which was how do we use tech to improve financial health and financial inclusion in Canada that ended up resulting in innovate financial health. Oh, wow. And so when you decided to join um, Studio Y, though, like, was it a set kind of tenure program where it's 10 months and then after that you have to figure out what you're going to do afterwards kind of like an MBA program sort of um it was uh it's definitely nine months and then uh what it was was that uh, I was just taking a leave of absence from Carney so Uh, so you always had the option to go back yeah I had the option to Uh, go back and a lot of us a lot of people um it's supposed to work with whatever your day job is already so you're not necessarily quitting to do the program and then um and then finding a new job. Although a lot of people took the opportunity to transition. Right. And I think you took the opportunity to transition as well as based on the project blossomed. Um, so after Mars and you went over to Social Capital Partners to, how does that work in tandem with like starting Innovate Financial Health? What exactly does Social Capital Partners do? I, I think my understanding is like it's backed by Peter Thiel. No, no, no. Oh, okay. It's so, a, yeah, it's a, it's a different, different one. Yeah. This social capital partners was first. Okay. <laughs> no, it's totally different. Um, so what happened was that 
we had this nine month fellowship. Uh, I was doing, uh, we came up with this idea for Innovate Financial Health. Um, we had a lot of advisors that told us it was a good idea um, and it's worth pursuing. Um, this but was when you were at Mars. This was at Mars. This was, um, so probably in spring of 2018, we were floating this idea around with a bunch of people we respected and getting good feedback. Um, the thing is, because it's the fellowship end in May, um, a lot of my co-founders had plans, had other plans. So actually three of my four, five, three of my four other co-founders left Canada. So one moved to Kenya, one moved to Singapore, one moved to, um, one moved to SF and then now in Victoria. Uh, so um, from my standpoint, uh, the decision was whether I should go back to Carney or not. Or, um, and the problem was that I knew if I did go back to consulting, uh, then this entire initiative would just die. Right. Um, so I decided to quit consulting. And at that point, uh, John Shell from Social Capital Partners was one of our advisors. Um, so I just asked him for office space. So uh, I just started working out of his office. And I had a couple of different advisors that offered me because at the beginning, this was just an idea. And, um, and at the beginning part, I was just trying to raise funding. That wasn't like a 40 hour a week job. Right? It was just a lot of coffee chats and meetings. Um, so I had a couple of options to work for two days a week, three days a week uh, for different for a startup or for uh, the one that I took was Social Capital Partners. And Social Capital Partners is the, really the founders. Um, so Bill Young is the original founder of Social Capital Partners. Um, and they're very much the founders. And he's very much like kind of the grandfather, godfather of like social impact here in Canada. So like 20 years ago, like he started impact investing. Um, so as Social Capital Partners, I started helping them out with some of the projects that they do. Oh, okay, gotcha. And yeah, because if you, since you left AT Current, you, there's no income stream anymore. So mm-hmm. this was a way to like, keep on sustaining yourself as you validated and tested this kind of idea out. Exactly. Why did you think, why wasn't there an option to, in your mind, continue working at AT Current like full-time while pursuing this on the side? Why did you feel <laughs> like you have to go full into it? I mean, I mean, like if you're familiar with consulting, right, you're working whatever, 50, 60, 70 hour weeks. Um, then you're not giving the projects the justice that deserves, right? Um, in my opinion. Um, and actually, Carney was very open. Um, they were willing to continue to extend my leave. Um, and from there, I can still get benefits and everything. I'm on my laptop and my phone and all of that. But in um, my standpoint, it was I, I had to cut ties because then I'm going to actually work the hardest I, mm-hmm. for the project, right? And it's... Like people think it's risky. It's not super risky because like if I really do need a job, I can always just go back and get a job from Carney. Um, so that's the mindset that I took in terms mm-hmm. of pursuing it. And when did when did it start feeling like turning into like its own like innovate financial health becoming its own entity where it transformed from just being an idea to its own accelerator? Yeah, so what happened was that in um, May I wrapped up at Mars. Um, and then for the next eight months or so, so, I just started talking to every bank in Canada, every like VC that I could get in front of, every like just different folks, foundations, um, to figure out who would actually fund it. Would um, we just cold calling them from like LinkedIn? Yeah, a lot of um, like Chase, I cold emailed. Um, JP Morgan Chase? Yeah, JP Morgan Chase, I cold emailed. Uh, and I cold emailed them. Uh, and it was funny. So I cold emailed them because they fund a similar initiative in the US. Oh. 
I didn't actually expect them to give me funding, but I just emailed them. I was like, hey, I want to know like why you fund this project in the US because I need to make the same case to the Canadian banks here. Um, and then, so we had a call and then they were excited about what I was doing. So within a week, they were like, hey, you know what? We actually just started making grants in Canada. Um, you need to like, you should apply, but we're like almost done granting for this year. You have like a week to like submit a proposal or something. And I was out on vacation in like Orlando or something with my girlfriend at the time. Um, but yeah, I submitted a proposal and they were super fast. And and so this was around December of um, that year where I closed some initial funding from Chase and then probably around February where I closed some funding from Capital One. And then at that point, I was like, okay, now we have money, like then I should do this full time and start building up the team. Mm. And when you got your funding, like, was it just enough to see if you can get like one cohort running or did you get enough to get multiple cohorts at least for like different series? No, no, it's it's um, just enough, like the bare bones to prove out the concept, get the pilot running. Get your MVP, right? Get the, get the MVP. And then now now we're, we're trying to figure out um, long-term funding. Gotcha. And... How did the Capital One one uh, start out then? Was that another cold email that worked? I mean, almost, I mean, a lot of these, right? It's not exactly a cold email. One of our advisors um, uh, from a nonprofit, Prosper Canada. Um, Prosper Canada is like a national nonprofit that does financial empowerment services uh, for Canadians um, and oversees a lot of that work. Um, so one of our advisors, Liz Maholan, who's the CEO there, um, she introduced us to Capital One. Uh, but even then, it wasn't a clean process. Like, I think at our first meeting in July, um, then, like, made a proposal in September. I really, like, didn't hear a lot from them. Like, they just kept on telling us, like, oh, we're still trying to, like, think through this. And then suddenly they were like, okay, yeah, let's do it. Wow. And I think that that speaks about how, like, these things take time. And it's like you kind of need enough long of a, like, enough of a bandwidth in your own patience and your own resolve to last long enough for these things to pan out yeah it so it took like an average like some some could say like it takes like about a year to get all these kinds of fundings settled out. and like what was it like though like while you were waiting and constantly trying to get more funding what was that experience like i think i think what's scary about doing these things is um in my mind, it's actually scarier when you get the funding than like when you don't get the funding, right? Because I think I think like entrepreneurship and starting something is like sexy, right? So like for me to have done this and um, spent six months and tried it out and not get anywhere and then decide, okay, I've tried this and I'm gonna now like quit. I can call myself an entrepreneur, but I can actually quit and I can go back to consulting and make a healthy salary. Like that's like the worst case. That's theoretically the worst case scenario, right? And it's not that bad, to be honest, right? What's scary is actually getting the money because now like, now you have deliverables. Now you actually have to do it, right? So so to be honest, like the eight months, like I was still working at Social Capital Partners. I was doing cool work. I was having these like interesting conversations. People were excited. Like it doesn't feel that bad. It's like a lot, it's a lot more nerve wracking afterwards, I would say, actually. On my thing, and <laughs> in my scenario. And no, I'd, I'd, love to, I'd love to dig more into that. Then. Like the money comes in, JP Morgan's like, all right, here's, I don't know, like some like 50 grand or 100 grand and Capital One says, okay, we'll contribute as well. What What's going through your mind then? I mean, I'm excited. Yeah. I'm definitely 100% excited. Um, I'm excited, but it's like this nervous energy, right? Like you're trying to um, 
because I and I I think um, you always have imposter syndrome too, right? Especially from my standpoint, I think that um, a lot of these types of initiatives, that the type of initiative that I'm trying to start, is usually founded by with money already and founded by like super experienced entrepreneurs that have money and like have the network to like do something. So if you think of how Mars started, how the Next Thirty Six program started, how um, all like it starts with a pool of money right um so it's super validating to be from a grassroots level to be able to like get the funding but it's also super nerve-wracking because i know that um everybody i know that like or i feel less qualified than everybody else that has done this before and that that imposter syndrome like I think many entrepreneurs I've had on the podcast, we've, we've talked about it. I, I love talking about it constantly just because it's the, the more I talk about it, it's more like therapy for me to mm-hmm. get over it. And yeah, th- I'd love to hear more about how, you know, when, when did, when do you feel it more and how do you kind of handle it? I mean, I feel imposter syndrome every day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, I love that. I love, yeah. that. I love that honesty. <laughs> then I'll get a little more specific. Um, like you talked about how, yeah, like um, it starts with a pool of money. And But what I'm curious about is your business model or the not-for-profit is you're helping other entrepreneurs accelerate their business, right? That's what the accelerator does. And I'm curious, how do you build or how do you earn the trust of these entrepreneurs that you're the person that can help them mm-hmm. um, navigate this? these uncertain waters yeah so there's two things right so one is that um like i have i have i don't believe i'm the individual that's going to advise each of these four companies that we selected and be the one that's going to make a difference for the four where i play a role is my ability to bring in a network of mentors and advisors that can support them right that's really where i play a role um so there's that element the second element is that before we announce the program, I've I talked to all of these entrepreneurs, right? Like I designed the program for them. So for a year and a half, I was having coffee chats with any financial health entrepreneur that I could get in front of. And I was asking them, what are your needs? What's your struggle with the ecosystem? Where do you think an accelerator can play a role? And I designed our accelerator based off of what they told me. So when we actually announced our accelerator, um, like we had 40 something applications from across Canada. Um, specifically from financial health fintechs and uh, and to be honest like I knew most of them on a personal level already because I've had these coffee chats with them Uh, so I think that really gave them the trust that I was doing this for the right reasons and I was building together the right network that could actually support them oh okay so you you went out and actually practically spoke with all the potential applicants ahead of time to understand what their needs were and then you designed the program and so when you say you designed this program, it what um, what are the components of the program? Like how how does it help companies through this accelerator? Yeah, it's very it's customized, right? So um, right now the stand, the program is three months. Um, we have four companies. Uh, one's from Toronto, but the other three are not. And uh, every month they come in for four days, and there's essentially a set of sessions on topics that are unique, uh, more or less unique to financial health fintechs. So 
Uh, we've done inclusive user testing. We've done behavioral economics. Um, we've done financial institution partnerships. And all of our sessions are uh, with experts in the field. So inclusive user testings from Code for Canada, our nonprofit partner has done that. We had the Behavioral Economics Institute at Rotman come in and talk about behavioral design and how you can integrate that into your product as a financial software. Um, and then we do a lot of mentor and investor speed dating events. And all of our mentors and investors um, are all fintech VCs, are venture capitalists. Um, they're all executives at financial institutions, uh, other experienced fintech entrepreneurs, or people from the social impact space, or people with lived experience working with um, people living paycheck to paycheck. Um, so we have a very tight network of the people that we bring in. Oh, and this is a not-for-profit. So how, are you paying mentors to come? Or are they all actually also volunteering to this not-for-profit? Yeah, program? everyone's volunteering. Wow. Yeah, everyone's volunteering. Like, I think really the reason, like, we've been getting a lot of great support from the ecosystem. And I think a lot of it is just selling people on the vision and on our purpose. And I, I think it's actually, like, for me, it was a... When I stop to think about it, even for my own podcast, like you coming on the podcast and other guests coming on, like it's all people volunteering their time and I'm not paying anyone to come on the podcast. And it's when I stop to think about it, I go, wow, it's crazy how generous people actually are and how willing they are to actually help when you just ask and kind of share the vision that you have with them and if they agree with it. People are, people are super, super generous. And, um, and that's where my cold emails come in, right? Like, um, but even through for our program, right, we've had um, like people that you would think are super, um, like they're super well known in the Toronto and Canadian tech ecosystem um, and they're willing to come in. So um, for an hour just to do a session without anything for them other than the fact that they want to give back. So we had, um, we had Andrew Graham, the CEO and co-founder of uh, Borwell come in to do a fireside chat. We had, um, Ernest Chi, who's the head of business ops at Drop. Uh, we have Aaron Brewery um, from Willful and Ali Pradad from Progressa coming in. Um, and we have this network of 80 plus mentors and advisors that are all willing just to come in and give their time um, just because they, they want to support. Ah, and, but despite all this generosity, I think there's gotta be times when it's been challenging to you know, run this accelerator, build it up. And I'm curious, like, what, what particular moments kind of stand out for you as like big hurdles where in the when, when you were there at that time, it just felt so insurmountable, like, God, this is a big, like this big obstacle. How do we get around it? Is there, is there one that kind of comes to mind? It's a good, I'm trying to think. Yeah. I think that um, for the accelerator itself, I think I, I'm fairly good at like being calm yeah, you sound like a very sure. calm person. <laughs> even, even when we met. Like, I mean, I mean, we like for the seller itself, right? Like you just have to think through the steps. Like, do we believe there's actually enough people that are going to apply and see value? And I, I just trusted in that. And I trust that I trust that we kind of hit this critical mass of support that like no matter like we can bring value just by bringing in mentors and our network. Right. So I think the the actual what I'm more concerned about is how do I deliver value to my funders and convince long-term funding, right? I think I think our execution, um, like we know how to do it. And I think that we can deliver value for the startups for sure. So it's really just 
um, how do you, how do you make sure that your funders are satisfied? And I think that's a very hard uh, hard to navigate because obviously financial institutions have their own goals uh, in place, and and it's just bureaucratic, right? So even though we have great great partners within financial institutions, there's plenty of other financial institutions that we've talked to who have people that were super passionate about our projects, but it's just hard for them to actually get funding, right? for us because of their constraints within the institution. Can you share some examples about that? You don't have to like name any names or anything, but just like the process of how, like, I think I've also experienced things where you have so many conversations and so many conversations seem like they're going to lead somewhere, but it just sometimes just falls short. Yeah, so so what was really pleasant about working with uh, J.P. Morgan Chase initially in the U.S. is that they have a very specific process that you go through for the funding. So we had a call, they gave me, this is the grant application, go through it. This is our feedback. These are the metrics we're looking at. Super crisp. Um, None of the Canadian financial institutions have that. So for all the Canadian financial institutions, it was a lot of meeting a VP and they're like, hey, this is super cool. Let's bring this up to SVP. Hey, this is super cool. Let's have a follow-up meeting. And and the challenge is that like eventually the conversation just dies because there is no process, right? So so that's definitely the norm for in terms of trying to get funding uh, for at least for innovative financial health. And let's get a little tactical there. Do you, when it, when it dies, because I'm experiencing that too as I'm constantly work, um, reaching out to companies for like sponsorship and also building out like the whole service side of my business. Do you follow up like two to three times? when it just seems to die out? I follow up, but not in, like, especially because we're, we're gaining traction now, mm-hmm. right? I, I show that we're delivering value. So uh, I invite them, like, even though I'm not following from a funding conversation, I invite them to be a mentor. I invite them to our launch events. I invite them to um, interact with our startups. And I think, like, I'm following up, but not with necessarily an objective in mind. It's just like keeping those connections there so that they can see how you're progressing um, so that at the point where they are ready, they can reinvent the conversation. Oh, I love that. I love that. The constantly adding value first mm-hmm. mentality. And I'm, I'm, I'm sure that there's been a lot of learnings that came out from these kind of reasons. What kind of learning, other learnings kind of came out? Uh, from, from what standpoint? From like my journey or for the accelerator um i, I want to touch on both but let's first since we're on the topic of the accelerator um we can touch on like what's come up from the learning in, in regards to like partnering up with organizations or getting funding from these large companies like what you've learned from that experience yeah i think we made a, i made a lot of mistakes like early on like what kind of mistakes well i asked for i asked for like dollar amounts that were bigger than their budgets like their full year annual budgets well, can you give us an example yeah yeah so for example like i'm like hey if i want to do this accelerator i want like at least like like five million bucks over three years or something so i would ask them hey this is like why i'm, I'm trying to raise and they're like yeah that's like more than our csr budget for um so i i definitely got that i was definitely being very super ambitious for for the fact that I'm totally unproven and have done nothing yet, right? Um, and it's a totally new idea. Like nobody else is doing this, right? Uh, so, and I think that, uh, I think there's a little bit of arrogance uh, on my standpoint in that like, I just believe that this this should exist in Canada. 
and it, it was hard for me to really i'm like this should exist you should just fund it right um because it's good for society right but you do have to recognize like whoever you're talking to like they have their own mandates and and i think how i want to approach funding conversations now is really like being a lot more crystal clear on the different tiers and value at each tier that they're going to get because it's a lot easier for them to make the case than just a blanket like hey this is a core initiative and we want to be a part of it mm. so when you like first reach out to like a new bank if there are any new ones that ever pop up and it's a fresh conversation now do you do you approach it with this is the value add. This is what who we are. This is the value add. And then, do you try to initiate a follow up conversation where then you talk about like the funding, or how do you get them to first respond to you and show some kind of interest? I mean, it, I mean, it's always going to stem from the passion for this issue. Mm. Like, I, I'm always going to have to start with why. Why does financial health matter in mm-hmm. Canada? And and we haven't mentioned it, but like over half of Canadians are living paycheck to paycheck. One third can't pay their bills on time and full each month. So it's like a significant issue and it's always going to come drive from the passion. And if the partner that's sitting across from me doesn't believe this is an issue in Canada, then the conversation is not going to go anywhere. Right. So you always have to convince them of the mission first. It's just that where the conversation changes is that then where when I'm asking for my needs, it's just more crisp in terms of where they can actually play a role. And I would actually love to now then dig into that passion, the the financial health side. How big is this actual like problem in Canada? It's big. <laughs> it's, it's huge, right? It's huge. And I think that, um, again, right, we just said like so many Canadians living paycheck to paycheck, right? Um, there's a lot of challenges in terms of accessing affordable credit. Um, there's challenges just like housing as well, right? Like if you think of Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, like if you have, it's hard to afford um, a home, right? So it's hard to afford rent. Um, so a lot of people are struggling financially uh, on a day-to-day basis. And would you say that this, you, you said how um, the focus for fin- innovative financial health is for companies that are helping with the financial health side for the lower income families. Is this a big, uh, a more like kind of material problem for that demographic? Yeah, sorry, it's not, it's not, um, I just want to clarify, it's not purely just for low-income individuals, mm-hmm. it's just for um, people that we consider financially vulnerable. I see. Um, and a lot of people with high income are financially vulnerable, right, because of debt, because uh, of their expenses and all of that. Um, there's quite a few people um, that are still living paycheck to paycheck that do have what we consider a higher income, mm-hmm. right? But I, I can give you, like, I'll give you an example or I should mention the four startups, right, that we have yeah. in our program. So, uh, for example, so one of them, Zayzoom out of Calgary, uh, what they do is they give uh, workers instant access to their paychecks when they need it. Um, and if you think of the challenge of people living uh, paycheck to paycheck, um, let's say they're a barista at Starbucks, and they get paid every two weeks, um, but you have to pay rent today, and you have to pay your bills today. Well, um, some of your options are to either not pay your bills um, and have NSF fees as well, um, or go to a payday lender. Um, but if you're accessing just the money that you've already earned, then that's your money. You're not going into debt to pay your bills. So it's, you're solving a cash flow issue. Um, there's another one called Cuber out in New Brunswick. Uh, what they do is they, um, it's a savings platform. 
a lot of their customers are middle-income women and mothers, um, but also they have a partnership with Momentum, where your low-income in Cal- sorry, Momentum's a nonprofit in Calgary, where your low-income, if you're low-income in Calgary, you can save on the Cuber platform, and Momentum will match that savings. Um, so if you save a hundred dollars, uh, Momentum will give you forty dollars. Um, so it's incentivizing savings for low-income Calgarians. Um, we have another altruism to financial education platform in Calgary that's based off of um, based off of life events. Um, so a lot of financial education and financial literacy is just standard workshops, um, but it's very hard to actually action on it. Whereas altruism is about life events. So if you're going through a divorce, this is how, what you do to get your finances in order. If you're graduating, this is what you do to get your finances in order. Um, and then the, the last one from Toronto is called Policy Me, and it's actually around life insurance and making um, access to life insurance uh, better. And that's important because if you don't have life insurance, it could be uh, very detrimental to your financial health in the future mm. or your family's financial health. Mm-hmm. And were the, I guess, like they're all tackling different um, problems that can help with the overall financial health picture. For you, is there kind of a kind of, foundational crux problem that you consider to be not like more important than the rest but something you're more focused on where you personally feel like ah this this one particular problem i feel like it can be the 80 20 where it can solve a lot of the other problems from a tech standpoint um not necessarily i think they're all important right Mm because it's all like what we have to recognize is that everybody deals with different situations so that each each startup can tackle different demographics in different situations and solve those very unique problems, right? But obviously, um, from a government and policy standpoint, right, uh, if you increase minimum wage, if you inc- um, improve the social safety net, that's going to have massive benefits for society in general. Mm. And on, on the topic of like increasing minimum wage, like there's also like other literature where it talks about how if you increase minimum wage, it can actually lead to... Um, potentially greater unemployment because companies who don't want to respond to that bull and trying to like automate jobs like there's like all these like nuances where certain policies can work in the short term but it might not work in the long term like how do you constantly like stay on top of all that and try to like think through this very like it's a very big problem it's, yeah, like, it's a yeah. very big issue and i'm and, probably not the right person to ask yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love that honesty but yeah because like how do you how do you how do you handle it though like in for you personally because it's, it's such a big problem and it's not a there's no i think easy solution about it for sure yeah it's a uh, i think that okay so how do i so i think there's two things so one um I think that there's a book called uh, Winners Take All. I'm not sure. It's all about kind of um, how to make a positive impact in the world and like what, what's worth. And that advocates a lot for policy work, right? So I think that on my standpoint, it's just recognizing my role in this ecosystem at this time, right? And re- recognizing that policy has a huge role in solving the issue that I'm trying to address. Um, but that's not where I necessarily know how to play because that's not my background at this time maybe in the future so for now it's just like keeping up to date with kind of all the literature and studies that are out there mm-hmm. okay and so, and on that journey how did you figure out the role that you should play like in you know like starting an accelerator instead of 
going on starting a company that tackles one niche issue and if you you know even after figuring it out how do you kind of get comfortable with accepting that this is my role yeah so so there's a couple of things so at mars right they gave me this question how do we use tech to improve financial inclusion and they didn't tell us what we should do with that question so we could have started our own startup and we could have done a policy paper of some sort um, but the whole point of the fellowship is how to make systemic change right and and when you're starting one startup that's not necessarily like systemic change right um, you are influencing people directly um, but you're not influencing a full system um, and when we we're talking to a lot of founders at that time we were interviewing a lot of people um, there were founders that were telling us how they started off with a mission in mind um, so they started off with the idea an idea of trying to help newcomers um, improve and access credit. Uh, however, the existing ecosystem here in Canada uh, with investors and the sellers would very, very quickly push them towards serving high net worth individuals or serving high earning millennials. So um, they weren't getting that support in order to pursue these business models. And the thesis behind Innovate Financial Health is that if we provide um, these individuals with the time and resources to actually uh, actually experiment and build out these products, then they're going to actually have uh, figure out sustainable business models that work, right? So that that's why we thought an accelerator and this type of organization is more important um, because then we can help like dozens of entrepreneurs and startups succeed um, versus just doing one. Mm-hmm. Do you ever have times of as like your Excel? At least for me, like one of the reasons that people sometimes, at least I became a consultant, was the curiosity, the constant desire to like learn more and then kind of. But there's also a bit of greed where you just want to do more. I'm curious when you're running the accelerator and you see all these, you know, you have your former company cohorts, but you've also seen all these other companies that applied. Do you ever have um, kind of an internal struggle where oh, I want to kind of tackle this other issue as well? Um, for sure, in terms of other issues. So right now we're focused on financial health, um, but I think there's a whole um, like future of work aspect, right? Like how do you, um, like there's a bunch of other issues I'm interested in, right? So like future of work, um, how to enable like people to actually succeed when uh, there's going to be more non-standard work in the future. Um, I just said future of work a lot of times in <laughs> those sentences. Mental health super interesting affordable housing super interesting um, like my vision is that this sector specific accelerators um, and bringing together people that are solving social issues together uh, works and i think that there's no reason innovate financial health that model doesn't shouldn't apply to mental health and to food security and mental health um, and affordable housing as well mm-hmm. so. yeah no, i i can definitely agree with that sentiment there and mm-hmm. We also talked about, um, we referenced kind of the learnings you've had so far from the kind of building the accelerator. And I also want to talk about the learnings you've had um, on yourself, but while going on this journey, what what kind of learnings kind of stick out for you as you've you know, transitioned from being a management consultant to going through a fellowship program to now starting an accelerator? Yeah, it's like, what have I learned about myself? Um, I've learned that... Uh, there's a lot of skills that I didn't know that I had that apparently, um, apparently I do, I guess. Um, so like what? So 
like I would not ever envision myself in this space where like my goal right now and who I am is essentially I'm trying to build a community and it's very much like the success is very much based off of my personal coffee chats and personal network and all that and I would say that like at Queens I was fully against the idea of networking and in general I'm like quite introverted as an individual <laughs> and and throughout Carney and I think I think that at that time when I was consulting I thought that my skill set was more in the analytics and the logic right um, and I don't do any of that anymore like my job now is much more social and much more communication um, so uh, I was I guess that's a piece about learning about myself um, I think we've mentioned this but even just uh, I definitely learned about just how do you actually get support and doing all of these cold emails and being able to actually attract people um, to whatever you're doing and building that building that ecosystem. Mm. And is there is there a particular kind of inflection point that you you'd say that you had in your career that kind of put you down this kind of unconventional path? I mean, definitely the fellowship, right? Definitely, yeah. I started with a problem in mind, right? I didn't start with the idea of um, I wanted to do something unconventional. Um, it was really just, you start, I was given a problem and I was given nine months to think about it. And then I would read books about it, listen to podcasts about it. And and the more you think about it, the more you come up with creative solutions, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I do think all entrepreneurs should start with some problem in mind that they want to solve. And it seems like you had this problem that you wanted to solve even before the fellowship. Yeah, it's, it's funny. So um, I think that the story fits when I look back in my life. Yeah. Um, because, yes, at Queens, I was running financial empowerment, um, kind of uh, not a financial empowerment student organizations. Um, and then one of my first internships was at the Ministry of the Attorney General uh, with the Office of the Public Guardian and Trustee. And what they do is that they actually manage the money of uh, individuals in Ontario that are deemed incapable of managing their own money. So um, people that have uh, gone through car crashes and can't and don't have family to manage the money, um, that's what they did. So I think the story fits when I go back. But to be honest, when I applied to Mars to be part of the finance and commerce group, um, my intention was not to stay in the finance and commerce group. So I the only reason I applied for that particular stream was because um, at Carney, uh, one of my like I was a lot of my projects were in financial institutions. So I thought that would improve my chance of actually getting accepted into the program. But I was much more interested in actually thinking of education and future of work. And that, that's really where I wanted to pivot to, but just so happened that I, I kept on thinking about this problem and, and, and now we're here. Wow, I love that. I love that. Uh, I appreciate the honesty as well of how things work out. And I think that's definitely a theme with, a lot of the podcast guests here where it's in hindsight, it all looks so like it's as if you planned everything, mm-hmm. but when you're actually going through it, it never really feels like that. And there's all these like weird pivots and yeah, I have no, I have no plan. And I think for the past like two years, I've, I've have no idea where my life will be in six yeah. months or a year. <laughs> and I still don't know. Um, like I have a general plan, but also, just going through this process, you do come like in terms of distraction, right? Like I have a vision for innovate financial health, but I would also think it'd be super cool just to travel around Canada and just document stories of individuals and how they manage their finances and 
just get to know people deep down um deep down it'd be cool to do like art projects in this space as well like i think there's just so many different things that you can do and i love that that you're getting really creative about it yeah mm -hmm. yeah no i think maybe you'll start a podcast about it and share stories Maybe, maybe. I'll, I'll need to do some more practice. <laughs> it, you also talked about how, you know, the the surprise of how, like, yeah, the skills you you have now that people are like, well, that's so valuable. But when you're in, you know, Carnegie and you were at school, you're like, yeah, oh, I, I didn't think about it. I thought it was all about analytics. And I thought that was my forte. And now you're building community. Yeah, we can talk about identity too, right? Like I'm super interested in identity and I'm trying to figure out my own identity. Ooh, okay, but yeah. I think that part of it is like you and me both being Asian American, right? Or Asian Canadian. Um, I think that plays a factor in how you perceive yourself, right? And, and I think it plays a factor in the fact that um, I always knew I was good at analytics and everyone expected me to be good at analytics um, because of that background. Um Whereas there's less examples of individuals that are quote unquote traditional leaders um, that are Asian American. Um, so I think that influences your own self-perception, even though I don't think it's true. Mm -hmm. um, and then it, part of the journey is the discovering what's in yourself. Yeah, no, totally. And I think there's, there's also the quote um, or common saying where just because you're good or great at it doesn't mean you should be doing it. And yeah. I think that's something I struggled with earlier on in my career where, yeah, like I, I, when I was in consulting, I established the brand as the financial modeler. Like that was my thing. I had partners coming from across the country to work with me because they're like, oh, like I heard you, like you're, you're great at financial modeling and you're very analytical. I'm like, yeah, I guess so. Like that's all the projects I'm doing now. And then I went to work at a hedge fund and I got completely blown out. And my, <laughs> my feedback goes, oh, Dan, your quantitative skills are pretty weak. And that was like, whoa. That was supposed to be my strength, at least when I was in consulting. And then now I'm working with all these rocket yeah. scientists and they're like, yeah, compared to our math skills, like you're kind of, you're, that's not your strength. Your strength is talking to people and like connecting. Like, oh, okay. So that that ties in with what people back in consulting said I was good at as well. So maybe that's actually the triangulation of what I'm really good at. I had the same experience, to be honest. Yeah. So in, in consulting, like first, I don't know how, but people knew me as an Excel superstar. And they would reach out to me for Excel questions and everything. And I was fine at Excel. I also knew, but I knew so many other people that were way better than me. And I and I always called them out on it. I'm like, why do you think I'm good at this? Like, there's no proof. There's no evidence other than the fact that somehow people believe it. Mm -hmm. Right? I think, so for me, mine was a, I created an intentional brand that way because mm -hmm. I wanted to be good at it. But no, by, by all means, yeah, like I wasn't, I was definitely, I think, overpraised to some degree because I started in consulting not knowing how to make a pivot table or I didn't even know how to make if statements. Yeah. Like that's how bad I was at Excel. And I eventually built a brand around it. But yeah, it's it's definitely humbling when you get different perspectives. You work with a lot of different people who can help triangulate what you're actually good at and get that, you know, help you find the identity of like who you actually are and mm -hmm. what you might actually be you know, put down on this earth to do. Yeah. We, I, I forgot to mention this because you also had asked me, um, like, why why an accelerator, right? And, mm -hmm. and part of it is, like, looking at your own skill sets and unique advantages. Um, and for me, like, I would not know the first thing about starting a tech, um, tech uh, startup um, because I don't have any of those coding skills, uh, design skills. 
any of the skills that you would need other than business. Um, so, but what I did have was just through luck and through privilege of doing Carney and doing um, and doing Mars was I had a network of advisors and supporters that could be super useful for startups. Um, so I had access um, at a young age to financial like executives at financial institutions and access to um, a lot of different mentors that could add value. Right. So, is that something you pers- personally figured out was an asset that you had, or how did you figure that out? Um, I think it was pretty obvious because uh, I had, just in terms of the people that we were chatting with uh, when we were discussing this idea, um, I had uh, just because of like my background at Carney, like one of my former partners that I was working with. Um, is now like a uh, very senior at RBC, for example, and uh, he like he believed in me early on, and I think that that helps, right? That's like validation, but that's also like uh, the fact that I have multiple people that are in those positions that believe in this um, and believe in me, then that that helps. Um, it, I realize that that's a privilege that most people my age don't have. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, definitely, and as we kind of get to the final uh, minutes of this fun chat. I want to ask you some final ending questions that I'd like to ask my guests. One particular one is what is a, what is a belief that you have that goes against conventional wisdom, whether it be in career or whether it's in the social impact space? I'd love to hear. Yeah. So career wise, um, I don't think people should. (laughs) So, my, my core belief is that I don't think people should care that much about their career. And they should, I don't think that they should, um, they should ascribe their value to what their career is. I think it's much more important that um, if on a day-to-day basis, are you being, in my, in my perspective, for me, like, am I being a good uh, friend, good son, good brother, good partner? Um, that's how I see whether I'm succeeding in life. Um, and I think that, you should work hard in whatever career you're doing, um, but that shouldn't define who you are as a person. And did that belief come, was that an early belief that you had growing up or is that something that developed over time? It's an, it's an early belief that I've had growing up um, throughout. Uh, like I've definitely worked very hard um, through consulting and everything, but I've always had that perspective um, throughout and I think it's just part of uh, something like I just through life experiences I, I recognize that if you pre- see ascribe your value to your career like any number of things like that's luck based can mess that entire proje- like entire projection up, right mm-hmm. so it could be health issues it could be a recession it could be whoever you're working on um, it, that company goes bankrupt there's so many different things that could happen that just throws things uh, off, right? So you need to see value elsewhere as mm-hmm. well. And if you if you could think back to your younger self, let's say like the 21-year-old uh, Elvis who's, who might be just about to start a career in consulting, what advice do you wish you could have given to yourself then? For me, I would say I I would say that um, one 
I, I would say for me, it's okay. What's going through my mind right now? I'm yeah. trying to like think through this, but you can just say it all out. Yeah, all out yeah, yeah. All, all out. I was like, one, like use your benefits because I definitely didn't do that. I love I that practicality. That's practical. <laughs> I was like, use your benefits, and then I would. I was so dumb. Like I would. Um, we have expenses, right? And uh, I think, uh, and it's just such a hassle to submit your expenses. So I definitely like ate costs myself that I shouldn't have when I could have just charged Carney for it. Um, so for some reason that comes top of mind. <laughs> That's some deep down stuff that you got to be. I think, I think another thing is just like, um, for me, it's always around like spending more time with your family and, uh, and your friends and figuring out earlier on, how do you um, separate and have that, like, how do you do your work? but then also have that time set aside where you're checking in on your relationships. Mm, like meaningfully actually engaging and setting time specifically for that purpose. Exactly. Yeah, like very being very meaningful in your relationships and reaching out to um, people. and Because you never know what people are going through. And, it, and if you're proactively thinking about them, like I think that means a lot. Mm-hmm. No, definitely. It's something... I'm continuously working on as well and yeah it's it's a big one and I feel like it gets bigger at least for me it's gotten bigger as I've been building up my own thing and it feels like my life is entirely consumed by it and so it's been because sometimes after work you come home and sometimes it's something I found it to be easier where I could just be like okay now I'm just going to focus on relationships but now it feels like every time I go home it's oh but there's so many other projects I could be doing and yeah it's been oh yeah it's uh, like this is I'm still bad, right? I'm still <laughs> I'm still awful with this, but but it's always like making the intention mm-hmm. to make a change about that. Yeah, well, all this this was a lot of fun. I I learned a lot for sure, and I really had a fun time uh, learning your story. And thanks for coming on and sharing that with me and my audience. Before we sign off, is there anything that we didn't talk about that you want wanted us to kind of share, like talk about, or you want to kind of share? Uh, no, this was this was a lot of fun and this was great. Um, just follow uh, uh, follow us on Twitter and uh, mainly Twitter. So at Elvis WC Wong and at Innovate underscore FH. Awesome. All right. Thanks for coming on my podcast, my friend. Great. Thank you. All right. Thank you for listening to the podcast. I hope the story was inspiring to you. It Hopefully, it also helped you expand your perspectives. Hopefully, it also made you question the default path that you might have been going on or the default beliefs you might have had. And maybe now it'll make you even think about doing something about it, doing something different maybe, challenging yourself, being courageous. Who knows? But regardless, I'm really happy that you took some time out of your day to listen to this fantastic story with my guest. And if you would like to somehow, in some way, contribute and help support the podcast and maybe even just be part of the community that I'm trying to build with the greater OMD Ventures platform, really think about being a stakeholder in the platform. And the quick way to do that is to go to my website, oldmandan.com, and go to the stakeholders page. I believe it's oldmandan.com slash stakeholder. And the link is also down below. And... That's how you can figure out how you can subscribe, follow to get more updates on the free content, but at the same time, also donate and donate 
by actually just buying me a coffee. That's just how I put it. And you can buy me a coffee a month, coffee a week, or coffee every day of the year. And think about it as the way that, you know, if you wanted to chat with me, you might just bring me out for coffee and buy me a coffee. Or if you wanted to bring one of my guests out to chat, you might buy them a coffee. So I'm just think of it as I'm the service that's doing that for you. So you can just pay me in coffees. <laughs> Don't worry, uh, everything will still be free. It's just it would just really help if you would like to show your support this way, so that I can use the coffee money to buy myself actual coffees, and also to buy my guests actual coffees, at, and use the leftover money to actually grow the platform, as well as even keep it operationally alive, as well because it all this isn't really free, and it does take a lot of time to build it, as well as operate it, and hopefully grow it further. So your support would be amazing if you would like to contribute and so yeah just check out the website go to the stakeholders page and read the different kind of benefits you might even get as a stakeholder all right thank you